Thank God it's Free Range. You are listening to Free Range Radio Friday with your host, Michael Elves. Pour yourself a beverage and turn up the volume because here on 101.5 UMFM, the weekend starts now. UMFM, this is Thank God It's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio. I'm Michael Elson kicking things off for us tonight. Friend of the show, C. Sams, with a new single that was released last Friday called Fade Away. Uh, You can get that one on Bandcamp at csams.bandcamp.com. You can also pick up a copy of Synthetic Properties, his last full length uh, there. 
Uh, there are still vinyl copies at Into the Music as well. Uh, we got a busy show for you tonight. David Rabinovich, U of M alum, has written a book with a Manitoba crime connection called Jukebox Empire. We'll get into that in just a few minutes. He's got some events happening next week. Uh, and then since it's game one of the World Series tonight between the Rangers and Diamondbacks, I've got a book interview that I did with Jonathan Mayo about scouting uh, that uh, I've been waiting to play on turning pages. I've had so many interviews with Winnipeg International Writers Fest authors, I just haven't had a chance to play it. But it seemed like the perfect time to break it out. The book is called Smart, Wrong, and Lucky. Uh, turning Pages, of course, runs Wednesdays, 1130 to noon. I will mention that next Wednesday, Sheldon Burney, friend of the show, uh, he's got a new book coming out on the 4th of November at McNally Robinson, and uh, he will join me on the show on Wednesday to talk about that one, where the pavement turns to sand. Before we get to that, though, Holy Void. Got a new single coming out November 17th. It's called Fear in Your Mind. Got a release show happening at the Times Change that also features a Ween tribute and the Lizards. This is it. Fear in Your Mind here on 101.5 UMFM.
All right, well, Jukebox Empire, The Mob and the Dark Side of the American Dream explores a very fascinating story with a Manitoba connection, and the author has a Manitoba connection as well. David Rabinovich is on the show to talk about it. Welcome. Hey, nice to be here with you, Michael. My at, at my own stomping grounds. I went to U of M for a year. Your alma mater. That's uh, it's we we occasionally have some 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 folks who are alumni who uh, who come on the show, and it's always a, a great pleasure to do so. Uh, your your story. It's a personal story. This is you know you have a personal connection to this story, but I'm very curious because as you write, you didn't necessarily know the full story growing up. That this wasn't something that was uh, commonly shared amongst your family about about your uncle. Well, in fact, the, the, my uncle, who was the uh, protagonist of the book, uh, was kind of a secret. It was very unusual in, in a large family that uh, we had an uncle we'd never met, my father's brother. And of course, there was uh, a curiosity about that. And there were lots of rumors and lore, like he created the, built the first multiple play jukebox. He made a fortune in, in bond trading. Uh, he flew planes. So there was all of this lore and intrigue, but uh, there was only a certain amount that people in the family knew for all the reasons that you'll find in the book of everything that I found more than 50 years later. So that discovery... As you write, you know, uh, one of the biggest discoveries and you, you mentioned in the acknowledgments was your sister submitting, you know, to one of those like 23andMe type DNA ancestry things. And and I won't spoil that discovery, but that, that kind of like led you into a, a world like was that the like prompt? Was th that discovery? No, the, 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 the DNA discovery the, the, in, on ancestry and we we won't spoil that except to say that I discovered that I had relatives that we didn't know about and they didn't know about us. <laughs> so right. the, the, uh, uh, that's a, uh, that didn't come until much later until I, in fact, had, had written a draft of the book and uh, one of my sisters submitted a DNA sample for a totally other reason and came up with more information. So um, it was, uh, I'd been interested in my uncle's story uh, really, since I was a teenager. And, uh, but there was only a certain amount of documentation that we could find. And as a documentary filmmaker, I really like documents and facts and, and something to build on. So it was close to 10 years ago when I got the biggest breakthrough, <clears throat> which was I found leads to uh, my Uncle Bill appearing in various trials and just sorting that out because there turned out to be quite a few of them <laughs> took a while mm -hmm. and the breakthrough came from a sympathetic clerk at the National Archives and Records Administration in Chicago. Now NARA has been in the news for the last year or so because that's the federal agency in the United States that sued Trump for all the documents that he took to Mar-a-Lago. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's NARA, very interesting organization. But um, the various trials took place in uh, different jurisdictions. It was very complicated. But I got this sympathetic clerk. Uh, I engaged her with the story. And several weeks later, she got back to me and said, I think I found what you're looking for. 
there's these trial documents, but they're out in the warehouse in Skokie, Illinois. They're deep in the basement and there's a blizzard. <laughs> I can't get there for a few weeks. Well, eventually I got over a thousand pages of trial transcripts uh, for something that I knew very little about, not the jukebox trials, but what turned out to be what the Department of Justice called the largest money laundering scheme in history. And ultimately, my uncle was the only one of the men indicted who took the fall for that caper. You mentioned being a documentarian. Do the skills that you use to put together a documentary film translate to putting together a book like this? Like, are, are the like phases of research and, and prep and, and, you know, drafting a well, script similar to writing a, an edit in, of this? Well, uh, you know, I, I've been a professional uh, journalist since I was 14 years old. I realized that was the first uh, time I was paid for my work by my hometown paper, the Morden Times. And then I went, went on to work at the CBC. Uh, I worked for Time Magazine when that meant something. Um, and so, uh, and then I became a, a television producer and filmmaker. So writing is at the, the heart of telling any story. And in fact, I began this project really as a, a treatment or what we call a Bible for a television series. And the more I got into it, the more I thought, I think I can turn this into a book because it's so rich in extraordinary and almost unbelievable detail. Writing for film is about what you leave out. So in the book, I could put Mm. all of the detail in and i hope it will engage uh, the readers yeah it is there's a lot of unbelievable details as you say that like you know the things that he gets involved in and the people that he's connected to stretch into like gun running to cuba and embezzling in europe and trying to buy a bank in switzerland like there's there's all sorts of like twists and turns yeah. to this in terms of like piecing that together, did you like map out like a timeline for your uncle or what? Like, how did you kind of kind of parse the like thread? The, 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 a, a, as a writer, I began by building a timeline and the more information got developed, we just kept expanding the timeline. And by doing that, I was ultimately able to cross reference uh, a lot of uh, uh, incidents and details that didn't quite make sense on their own or or stood on their own, but how did they happen? So uh, that was the process. And, you know, as a writer, I love doing the research. So I, I find a new nugget and go, oh, wow. So just to extend on that, um, I'd written a draft of the book and I thought it was done. And then in 2018, as a consequence of something in the US called the Kennedy Assassinations Records Act, uh, the FBI and the CIA released more than 18,000 classified files. And I found references to my uncle and his cohorts, shall we say, in more than 100 files. So that meant I had to go back and um, not really rewrite what I had done, but expand the book. And the book expanded by over 20,000 words with uh, 
uh, just the the detail of this caper that rivals Ocean's Eleven. The difference is, this is all true. Right. You you recount that someone at the time was like, "This is like the Rat Pack movie, The Ocean's Eleven." Right. That like. It registered to the people involved in it, or at least, you know, people at the time as being like a crime caper from a film. Well, we're, we're all familiar with the, the current series, uh, uh, the Ocean's Eleven series, Ocean's Twelve, with the women, Ocean's Eight. Right, the Soderbergh uh, ones, yeah. With, with uh, George Clooney, produced by Steven Soderbergh. But he got the rights to the original Ocean's Eleven movie, which I think was released about 1960 or 61 uh, with uh, Sammy Davis Jr. I mean, had had an all-star cast at that time. It's the same plot. Well, in my book, (laughs) the true story version of this, the mob uh, owned all of the casinos in Havana. And in the late 1950s, they were threatened by Castro and the communist revolution, because gambling is a sin and exploitation of the masses. And uh, so the casinos were under threat. They decided to protect their interests by doubling down, by sending armaments both to Castro and to Batista, figuring that whoever won, they'd still have an interest in the in the casinos and get there and pay their skim to the dictator. Now, how do you do this? This is where organized crime has an absolute parallel to legitimate business. The, uh, they needed uh, the product to get to Cuba. They, they needed guns. Where do you get guns? Well, if you're the mob, you get them from a United States Army uh, arsenal. <laughs> you break into the arsenal, and that's where you get the guns. Uh, you need uh, shipping. Well, you know, the, the uh, government has an air force, so they created their own air force. They stole a lot of small planes off the docks in Florida and Cuba, and they were running six planes ferrying armaments down to Cuba. But the key thing is, like any business, you need financing. Uh, you know, how are you going to pay all these people doing the various aspects uh, of the uh, uh, the caper. Well, this is another whole group, which was a group run out of Montreal, who blasted into a bank vault in Brockville, Ontario, and got away with what was called the biggest bank robbery in the world. In 1958 money, it was about $14 million. That would be about $200 million Uh, allowing for inflation. Extraordinary. And what they took were bonds, not corporate bonds, but bearer bonds. Not very common today, but a bearer bond is like currency. It's like a dollar bill. Whoever has it, owns it. So they had a problem. They needed to fungify uh, the bonds. They needed to turn them into cash to pay off all the various crews who were doing the different components of of this Ocean's Eleven style caper. And that's where my uncle came in. Uh, He was known to these people and they figured he had uh, both the smarts and the chutzpah to pull this off. 
So his role was as the financier to take these bonds to European banks and turn them into cash. Now, as for his being known to these people, like as you talk about in kind of the first portion of the book, jukeboxes are linked to crime. You know that the because of their like cash nature of jukeboxes, they are uh, very much like a, a laundering opportunity for cr- criminal organizations. Well, every coin machine is, is part of, or certainly was part of a criminal enterprise because it took, you know, strong men, literally, who would come and take the coins out of whether it was a jukebox uh, or, or a cigarette machine or, a, you know, a Coke machine, and they had to move that money. So, of course, in the counting the money, it was, you know, here's a little bit for the guy who's got it on his location. Uh, here's a little bit for the government and here's the rest for us. <laughs> so it was estimated in a, uh, a Senate inquiry, uh, which was conducted by Robert Kennedy, by the way, as the lead counsel in 1958, that the uh, unreported value uh, of money flowing through the coin machine industry in the United States was two and a half billion dollars. That's 65 years ago. So an incredible uh, off-the-books economy. Now, when the jukebox became a really big thing, beginning in the the late 1930s, uh, uh, it was uh, clear that uh, it was the the most valuable part of the coin machine industry. And so uh, that's how uh, the mob got involved. Yeah, and so, I mean, there's a a dual Manitoba connection in in terms of the jukeboxes as as you detail right like that you talked about you know the the court transcripts that you ended up getting uh from Nara are are for the the later stuff but your 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 uncle was involved in litigation around you know ownership of patents on on these jukeboxes because there was there was another Manitoban who uh ran and and developed a an, a competing jukebox organization and both of them had you know criminal uh aspects to it uh, did you know about that before you started kind of research no no you know i i just uh, as with uh, i think any journalism i had to start by learning what were the right questions to ask and so i came into that that yes david rockola uh was one of the pioneers in the jukebox industry uh, and he had certainly at some points in his career uh, criminal associations, uh, and he was very litigious. So uh, without going into the, the detail of this, when my uncle built his jukebox, which was called the Maestro, and really revolutionized the jukebox industry for a period right after World War II, Rockola was firing, you know, firing suits all, all over the place. Now, uh, kind of coincidental that, you know, my uncle was from Morden, Manitoba, and David Rocola was from Verdon, Manitoba. So how do these two, you know, boys from Manitoba become the titans of the jukebox industry? I should mention, uh, Rocola is the only jukebox company left in the United States, but it was bought by foreign interests uh, a few years ago. 
Uh, and uh, the other connection, I note, um, being in the, the Salisbury house at Pembina and Taylor some time ago, there's Rocola number 35 uh, is in the uh, entryway there because Burton Cummings collects Rocola jukeboxes. <laughs> there you go. Um, you'd mentioned that the the legislation around the, the Kennedy assassination freed up a lot of these documents that, you know, a thousand pages did you ever expect or anticipate that this kind of information was out there about your uncle? Or was that just like a data dump that surprised you as you were working on this story? Yeah, there, well, to be clear, uh, he had no connection in any way with the Kennedy assassination. The, the documentation following him uh, is between about 1958 and 1960. And it was included in there because of his associations because of his association with the, these mobsters uh, who were shipping guns to Cuba. And uh, but it's, it's years before the assassination. So there's there's no direct connection. But the agencies, uh, as they investigated at the time, this is how they were attempting to make the connections. So you get that extra, you know, dump of information. You, you'd already written a, a draft were there any threads you weren't able to, you know, pull on like that, like they came loose and, and didn't work out for you? Like, was there any pieces that you just couldn't put together? Um, I think we found just about everything, uh, including uh, the as far as I know, the last living witness to uh, these events, who was um, my uncle's lover. Uh, you can read the chapter on the book in her. It's entitled Dolly. I did speak with her briefly. Um, and uh, other than that, I just received about six weeks ago some information that I really wish I had had in right before the book went to press because I, I had another, an aunt, another sister of, of his uncle, who had a career of her own uh, as a writer. Uh, she worked uh, at New the New Yorker in the 1930s and then for a magazine called The Montrealer. And I finally got uh, her son, my cousin, to send me her papers. And right at the top of them was a letter from another uncle who's featured in, in the book, my uncle Leon, who had the stage name Lee Cagney, as a musician, because his agent said, he's a dead ringer for Jimmy Cagney. And everybody thought he was Jimmy Cagney's brother. <laughs> so these are all the connections to this. But I just got these documents. And in fact, I have one right here because I've been working on it. And if you'd like to take about 40 seconds, I'll read you a little piece that nobody's ever heard. Let's do it. And this, this would have been, for me, the the really the epitaph in the book. So this was written by his brother after his death. I don't know what he was looking for. He once had everything anyone could wish for, but he didn't know what to do with it. It was like he got on a merry-go-round, and only when the motor stopped did he stop. He was warned to take it easy, but he didn't. It was always, as soon as I finished this deal, or that one. Like you said, 
maybe he didn't grow up. I know he didn't mean to be bad or hard to anyone, but he did it in a way that he hurt many people, not physically, but mostly from promises that were never kept. He had a way of talking himself into what he couldn't do. This is all of that. I suppose I had to get it off my chest. So I, I can't write anything more moving than that. Uh, and I'm, uh, for, you know, if the book is successful and we get to a second edition, that will certainly be at the end. It's, it's interesting that you didn't have that because that's the portrayal or the portrait that you portray of your uncle that like that aspiration and striving that never ceases, right? That he's always on to the next thing. And then he's got cooking up an idea or hatching a plan. Clearly like Leon saw this at the time, but you, you were able to portray this or I, I, I infer that you saw the same idea of your uncle even before having this document. No, I, I really wanted to find out what made him tick. How, how did a person whom everybody uh, who knew him that I had the opportunity to speak with, they said, you know, he had charisma. He, he, he really had promised he could do anything. And then finding, and he did. I mean, he graduated from U of M in pharmacy, but he only worked for a summer or two as a pharmacist in the in the local drugstore in Morden. He got a pilot's license. He could fly. Um, he had an aptitude for electronics. He made radios during World War II uh, for the U.S. Armed Forces. So he had all these talents and a personality that was engaging. But to me, this letter that I only just got now, um, it it has uh, a great Gatsby kind of quality to it. And so that from the, the brother who was closest to him, I think deserves to be the final word. For sure. Now, the... I'm I'm very curious about because so like one of the people that he is in contact with and who's tried with him is Sam Manorino. And at the end of after the trial, you write uh you have quotes from I think as an FBI agent that he like sits down and talks to them at length. And oh, that's ex it's one of the most extraordinary documents. It's so fascinating. My uncle, because I I was so puzzled as to like why someone would do this. The the um so my uncle's partner in the jukebox business, and then later in the uh, money laundering uh, caper, was a major mafioso named Sam Manorino. And Sam and his brother, Gabriel, who was known as Kelly, uh, go figure, um, they were the kingpins uh, of organized crime in uh, the Pittsburgh area. So, um, you're going to have to edit here because I lost my train here. Sure. Um, sorry, help me, Michael. What's the yeah? So the, the... the informant, the like sitting, they're sitting down with the FBI agent and talking after the. Oh trial. yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. So so it is, as you asked, it is an extraordinary document that came out of these eighteen thousand files that were declassified. It's like an exit interview from La Cosa Nostra. And I think Manorino, he loved to talk about 
his career. And he, he said, the, the FBI agent said, well, you were a button man for the, and, and Sam interrupts him. This is all in the, this incredible file. He said, no, he said, you got it wrong. That's a New York term. I was down in Florida. There were called Elks. It was like the Elks Club, but you had to have murdered somebody to be in the Elks Club. So it's, a, it's an unbelievable uh, document. And um, in a way, I, I think he wanted a kind of uh, glory for himself. Yeah, it it is. It reads wildly because I was like, who would do this with who would do this with a like federal agent knowing that they're talking to a federal agent and describing? Yeah, no, I've killed people. That's why I'm in the Elks is that we called it that in Florida. Uh, was there anything that you came across that you just didn't include, like that didn't work in terms of the context of the book that you would have liked or you found fascinating? Um, no, I, I don't think that there's, there's nothing I left out. Uh, there's, uh, I, I've learned over my career that whatever one's preconceptions, uh, as a journalist are, throw them out because you'll never get the story right. You have to be open to the unexpected. Uh, and so I, I, I didn't really know, I knew about the jukeboxes. Uh, my father, who was very close to his brother, sort of dismissed the second aspect of the book. He said, oh, you know, he said, Bill was sort of a courier for them. He, he just, you know, transferred things. Um, but nobody really had the detail. Although another aunt of mine, you know, she said we were all, it was shameful. He was on the front page of every newspaper in North America. So I had to, you know, the net, the web now makes it possible to find all of that. On the other hand, there was a kind of, um, I think, perverse pride. That if you're going to steal, steal big, because he was a man who lived large. So he did, he did big things, you know, in the, in the jukebox period. Um, so Wurlitzer, which was the number one, uh, like in any uh, kind of uh, trade, they had lots of promotions for their dealers. And one of them was the Wurlitzer Express, a party train that went across the United States, picking up dealers and partying, you know, uh, across the country. So my uncle did one better. He bought an airplane <laughs> from a surplus troop transport from the U.S. Army. And he barnstormed the country in his plane. So picking up dealers and partying along the way. As it happens in the uh, personal aspects of this, after he passed away uh, in the early 70s, a package came to my parents' house uh, with about 12 reels of 16 millimeter uh, film. And they were my Uncle Bill's home movies from <laughs> the 1940s, including shots through the cockpit as he's barnstorming the country with, with the uh, jukebox. That's uh, a, a treasure trove. He was, it, I mean, he definitely reads as a larger-than-life character. Uh, obviously, he, he loomed large in your life. Do you still have the stamps that he sent you? I'm sorry, do I still have the... Just... The, the stamps that he sent you? 
Oh, no, those weren't to me. Oh, oh it was the other nephew. Okay. <laughs> he liked, I'll just explain briefly. So while he was in Europe, uh, going from bank to bank, making the deal on the bonds, uh, he'd go somewhere and put a lot of stamps on an envelope uh, and address it. Actually, there were two that I'm aware of to two different cousins of mine, you know, his, his young nephews, no message, no return address, but lots of stamps on them for the boys' stamp collections. So in the middle of pulling off this extraordinary largest money laundering scheme in the world, uh, he had time to uh, set stamps for his nephew's stamp collections. It was a, a great detail. I really enjoyed. There's a lot of details to enjoy in Jukebox Empire, the mob and the dark side of the American dream. David, thanks very much for taking some time to join us on the program and congratulations on the book. Michael, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And let me just uh, put in a little information for your listeners. Uh, I will be at three events uh, in Manitoba next week. So um, if you don't mind a little, little uh, promo here. Um, on November 2nd, next Thursday, uh, at the Rady JCC, uh, I'll be doing a reading and a, a, a Q&A. Um, the next day, on Friday the 3rd, uh, I'm going to Morden, Manitoba, where we're from, where the beginning part of the story takes place. And we're doing an event at the Pembina Hills Arts Center there. And then uh, on Sunday, November 5th, at the Whodunit Bookstore in the afternoon, we'll be doing a launch there. So I hope some of the people listening can join us for one of those. Perfect.
Back here on Thank God It's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio. And right before the break, Land of Talk with my favorite song off of their new record performances. That was Your Beautiful Self. Another beautiful track for you, Emily Kahn with Sunday Afternoon. Now, uh, the way that the schedule falls, there are no Sunday afternoon games in the World Series. It's an off day, but uh, the World Series starting tonight between the Rangers and the Diamondbacks. And as I mentioned at the start of the show, Perfect time to air my interview with Jonathan Mayo about his book on scouting. The book is called Smart, Wrong, and Lucky. We'll get into that right after Emily Kahn.
Well, his new book is called Smart, Wrong, and Lucky, The Origin Stories of Baseball's Unexpected Stars. Jonathan Mayo, the writer, joins me on the show. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. So I want to talk a little bit about your background before we get into the book, because you write for MLB.com, you cover MLB Pipeline. You you got into, you know, looking at evaluating talent. How did you land at that as a, as a career? It, some of it was kind of uh, professional survival. Um but, uh, you know, I wasn't, I, I did major league stuff, um, started back a long time ago. I was the first staff writer MLB.com ever hired in 1999. And then, you know, baseball advanced media happened. We started expanding and we had a lot of national writers and there's only so many stories to go around. And I always liked doing prospect stuff and we covered the draft every year, which, you know, uh, I learned pretty quickly, you know, was a huge deal on, on the website. And so in 2003, um, you know, I, I, I needed to do something else. And we didn't have a prospect writer. We had like a small prospect section and we would occasionally populate it if one of our beat writers did something in spring training or something it was few and far between. So I said, how about I do that full time? And I've been doing it since. So it's been 20 years now. So did that you know, pivot for you, then prepare you for a, a book like this in the future? Like you started thinking about, you know, identifying players and, and that process and, and talking more to scouts and things like that? Oh, it definitely did. I mean, it's, I spend a lot of time talking to scouts day to day. It's, uh, we rely on them for our rankings, our information leading up to the draft, all, you know, all of that. They, uh, much as they are the lifeblood of the game, they're, they're our lifeblood for our content, and they're great storytellers. And uh, it really kind of stemmed from, and I think it was during the pandemic, we were looking for content, and I did like a, a an oral history piece on how Charlie Blackman was scouted, mostly because randomly I was talking to a, 
a friend of mine, Brian Bridges, who was the Brave scouting director, and he's now the national cross checker for the Giants. And he was telling me the story about how he had drafted Charlie Blackman as a pitcher out of high school when he was an area scout with the Marlins and had completely missed on the fact that maybe he could hit. Um, everyone did. And after I did that one, I'm, I started thinking, like, you know what? There are tons of stories like this. There are tons of stories of guys who, uh, you know, were undervalued or, or underseen, under-evaluated, whatever it is, as amateurs who then went on to far exceed whatever meager expectations that might come with being a later-round pick. So you, you profile several different players. In assembling that list, like, did you start looking at, you know, where guys went versus, you know, how they've ended up and, you know, career war and stuff like that and think, you know, what are the best examples of this? Or was there you know, specifics to each, you know, like Blackman being someone who was a pitcher first and then showed talent as a, as a batter and, and became, you know, an all, all-star hitter. Like, were you looking to kind of a, like look at different avenues in which scouts missed or like the guys dropped, things like that? I think it was kind of a little of column A, column B, and column C. You know, I definitely, Sometimes it would be after the fact, if I heard a story, I'd look to see, you know, what a guy's career war is. And most of the, most of the stories that came up were known guys. So I knew, you know, Lorenzo Cain had a good career that Ian Kinsler was really, really good, you know, things like that. Um, But I think, you know, what started happening is whenever I call up a scout to talk to him about something else, I would say, Hey, um, you know, I did this Charlie Blackman thing. Like, do you have any stories like that? Do you know of any stories? Scouts love to talk about the guys they missed, you know, the ones who got away. They are more typical to say, you need to talk to this scout from this team, you know, about Jacob DeGrom, you know, things like that. So I kind of started amassing stories first. And obviously the names in the book are all very recognizable. So I didn't have to like, oh, I got to make sure that they were good. You know, the Ian Kinsler story I knew a little bit about. He didn't go until the 17th round, played for three different schools. It wasn't until I started digging in that I realized that he actually had the most career war of anyone in his draft class. Um, You know, so that obviously made it into the chapter, but I didn't pick him solely because of that. Right. So it initially starts then, it sounds like, as a, like almost a fishing expedition with these scouts that you're you're already, you're obviously talking to them for your day job with the, the pipeline stuff and, you know, asking the pressing questions you need for, for those stories, but then saying, hey, like, well, I've got you on the line. Do, yeah. do, do you have something I can stash away or, you know, an avenue I can explore? Yeah. And then sometimes they, uh, you know, their institutional memory tends to be good, but some of them have been doing it a long time. And all of a sudden they'll think of something later on. And then some of the things didn't, you know, didn't totally work. Brian, uh, Brian Bridges told me the great, great story. You know, uh, Buster Posey, when he was coming out of high school, uh, most people liked him as a pitcher. He was like a command, almost like a Greg Maddox-y, which is, you know, it's ridiculous to put that kind of label. But that was the kind of pitcher he was, athletic on the mound, didn't throw super hard. He He said the crazy thing about that for him is that he knew he was a good hitter. He would coach the East Coast Professional Showcase Georgia team every year. And even though Posey was there as a pitcher, he used Posey as a pinch hitter in the in a key moment. The Georgia versus Florida game is always huge at that showcase. 
and he used Posey to pinch it with the bases loaded and he hit a double off the wall. And it still didn't occur to him, oh, maybe I should look at him as a hitter. You know, he then went on to someone, uh, I forgot who it was, drafted him late, you know, as a high schooler. He went on to Florida State. He had never caught until he got to Florida State. So that was an, an added thing. But the, the ability to swing the bat was one of those just he missed it. Um, so that didn't really fit into this book because Buster Posey ended up being the number five overall pick. But, you know, you know, for every seven stories someone told me, three of them could have fit in the book. Because I could probably crank out a few volumes of this if I if I wanted to. I was gonna I say this 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 is this could be a series rather than just an individual book from the numbers of players who've, you know, fallen in the draft. Yeah, sure. I mean, there are there are stars in every round of every year that that come. And, you know, I, I'm also interested because I cover the draft so closely and the, the opposite, the the guys who were supposed to be good that didn't make it. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe eventually I can write that. For a first volume, though, to have a, a book with a cover of pictures of guys that no one has any idea who they are, I figured was probably not super smart from a sales standpoint, but maybe I'll get to that because those stories are, you know, are fascinating also for, for different reasons. Yeah. You want to have Mookie Betts and uh, Albert Pujols on your cover. That certainly helps right? sales, right? Not my, my, not my first rodeo. So no, exactly. Uh, so you, you mentioned, you know, that the, the, they see Buster Posey as a pitcher. They don't conceive of him even after he's hit this, you know, game winning double, there, that is a, a recurrent theme in in the book is like seeing a guy a specific way or having slotted him in as something and then being like unable to like change their mind or wrap their head around when the evidence presents itself. You know, did you talk to scouts about kind of like lock locked in mindsets and, and pushing against that? Yeah, I'm trying to remember um, Alan Matthews, who was the area scout for the Rockies, had a great term for it. You know, it's sort of like f- familiarity bias, but there's a, but it's not quite that. Um, the thing that worked in his favor is that he was new, so he had never, he never saw Charlie Blackman pitch. You know, so I, I think that happens a lot, and even with you know Buster Posey, every year there are guys, and maybe we're seeing some guys getting the chance to be two way players now, and maybe someone would have entertained that for Buster Posey back then, but more often than not the industry leans one way or the other, even if they're talented both ways, um, you know, and sometimes it all takes us, you know, a team to go one team to want to go in the other direction. The Braves were the outlier and wanting to let Austin Riley hit. Most teams liked him as a pitcher. What a waste that would have been, you know, um, looking at what he's done, you know, in Atlanta. So they were, they were right about that. So, you know, I think it could have been the thing that they, Oh, he's a good hitter, but you know he's really his future is on the mound, kind of thing, and that's why they sort of put aside his his ability to hit. And the same thing you know, with Charlie Blackman. Why more teams weren't on him, even though he hit close to four hundred. I mean, there are two. There was no track record, right? He had never hit ever, and people in the area because he stayed in Georgia the whole time couldn't help but think of him as a failed pitcher. Um. And yes, he put up numbers, but he was a college performer. But I think the fact that Alan Matthews had never seen him do the other thing, um, you know, made a big difference. And yeah, there are definitely, uh, I'm trying to, I think in this book, there weren't necessarily cases like that. You know, not everybody liked the players who ended up getting drafted. Albert Pujols, 
you know, famously didn't go until the 13th round. Didn't like his body. Yeah, they didn't like his body. Uh, he was from a small, you know, high school, small junior college. And, you know, in the in the in the chapter, I don't want to give give away too much. Um, the Rays were a team that re- did really like him. The area scout loved him. And the Rays scouting director sent in several cross checkers because the Eric scout kept sending in these glowing reports and the area scouts all saw him bad, you know? And so they, they didn't know what to do. That scouting director, Dan Jennings changed how he drafted soon thereafter. Um, you know, they didn't have to wait long to, to get a return on investment because it took Pujols only a year of minor league ball to get to the big leagues where if an area scout was pounding the table that much in the later rounds, even if the air, the cross checkers didn't see him as well, he was going to take him anyway. You know, why not take a chance on someone who's got conviction? Um, so he sort of shifted his mindset in his dra- late round drafting philosophy because of Albert Pujols. So speaking of pounding the table, I mean, the scout has to be at the table when it comes time to draft f- for that action to happen. And they're not always in the room. And you kind of talk about like guys, you know, slipping because they didn't have a champion in, in the room in, in some instances. Was that a like recurrent theme when you were talking to these scouts about, you know, like part of the part of the reason we missed out on this guy is because, you know, maybe I saw him and I didn't have the opportunity to, to vouch for him on draft day. Yeah, you know, I focus so much on the teams that got him. You know, so I'm thinking of like Mookie Betts. There were a couple of other teams really interested. And I did talk to Sean Campbell, who was cross-checking for the San Diego Padres. So he was in the room and did talk him up. I don't know if it got to table-pounding status, you know, quite yet. Um, the interesting thing with the Red Sox is that um, – you know, Danny Watkins already had a good reputation and that carried a lot of weight. Tom Allison was a respected scout, but he was new to the organization. And I think if it had been a situation where, where Tommy had been with the Red Sox for years, he would have been a little more vocal. So some of it is just the dynamic, even if you're in the room, right? He couldn't go up to his new boss. He'd been there a year and say, you really got to take this guy. He kind of just had to kind of gently be like, maybe we should consider taking him. You know, um, and Amiel Sade, to his credit, said he, he even went back and looked at the original reports. He's like, why didn't I take this guy sooner based on the reports? But um, it is a, it's an interesting dynamic because even if the area scout is in the room, there's a certain protocol. You can't start pounding the table too soon. You have to kind of pick your spots. Sometimes there's a hierarchy where maybe he'd have to go to a cross checker who would then have to go to the scouting director. And then you have to hope that the, the, the cross checker, you know, is sort of is in your corner as well. And that's what happened with the Mets and Jacob deGrom, their East coast cross checker saw deGrom and liked him. Uh, nobody knew he was going to throw hundred miles an hour, but uh, you know, have multiple scouts sort of advocating always kind of helps get things pushed across the finish line, even even if it takes a little bit longer than it should have in retrospect. Yeah, for, I mean, folks who haven't read the book and don't fully understand kind of like the the way scouting is kind of set up, you know, there's an individual scout who has like a territory and then the teams have kind of guys who cover a larger turf who then kind of, you know, read those reports and they're the cross-checkers who, you know, say yay or nay based on the, those initial scouting reports. And like you said, you know, some guys, organizations, they see the guy on a bad day and then it 
it doesn't add up. Like they, you know, cross that guy off the list rather than reinforce what right. the, the scout was saying. Uh, I mean, as a system, it's been a system for a long time. These, you know, kind of territories and, and the way that the scouts cover things. Have they ever done like a 360 kind of review of like if we missed on these things because of like how large a territory a cross checker has to do. And he, you know, has like one or maybe two looks at a guy versus a guy who's there a lot more and, and sees a lot more of this player. So we don't, you know, miss on a guy or undervalue him. Yeah. I, you know, and, and the, and then the scouting director who oversees all of it beyond, you know, the first couple rounds won't get more than a look at a guy you know, you may get a later round guy, you know, who you see at a showcase or you bring him for a workout or if he's a college player at a conference tournament, but th- they don't have the time to bear down on, you know, you know, the, the guys who are going to go a little bit later on. I think they are constantly sort of doing those kinds of debriefs to see where holes might be. It, it, it's a very, very imperfect science. Um, you know, this is where I think the advent of advanced data and analytics and video can be useful. I'm saying that carefully because unfortunately I feel that there's some teams who are doing that in lieu of actual scouting of the players, uh, which anyone who's ever talked to me or anyone who reads this book, will it's pretty abundantly clear where I stand on that you know, in that argument, uh, I think you need both. I think what could happen if Albert Pujols came through now, first of all, Albert Pujols, because there's so much more showcase baseball now, even where he was, you know, and given the circumstances, probably wouldn't have been as unseen. Same with Joey Votto in Canada. Um, so that, I mean, that, that, that has changed. But now I think, let's say, you know, Dan Jennings, because his area scout kept saying, I love Pujols. He's the best player in my era. He sent in like high level cross checkers, guys who went on to become scouting directors, really good scouts repeatedly. In today's world, if those guys went in and be like, I didn't see it. The area scout could then say, well, you need to look at all this video. You know, uh, maybe there'd be a lot more exit velocity information, even at the junior college level. So I think there could be things that could back up an area scouts claim to, to help maybe shorten Bol- those gaps. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would bolster their argument and shorten those gaps where these players fall through. But even if everything was scientific and done completely analytically, you're still going to have guys who go in the 12th round who 15 years later, you look back and be like, that guy should have been a first rounder. Right, in the same way that you get those high, high draft picks who who burn out, whether it's due to injury or you know they they meet pitching they can't hit in the double A level or something like that, that yeah, you, I, and part of that you know picking the guy in the twelfth and he ends up being you know first round value, is intentional, right? Like you talk about you know some teams having their eye on a specific player and no one else you know being there and scouting him and thinking he's not on anyone's radar. We can we can get him later. We can we can push it down the draft list and go after the like high demand guys earlier on. Right. Right. And I mean, nowadays with the bonus pool system that they have in the draft where you can only spend a certain amount for the top 10 rounds, you have to be even more mindful. I think the, the lucky part of smart, wrong and lucky is going to come in more in you know, in those, the rounds 11 through 20. Um, But 
yes. Uh, you're usually aware of who else is interested in a player. Um, you know, if and the really good area scouts really know. I mean, that's what happened with Ian Kinsler and the Rangers, where their area scout, Mike Grouse, just really had a feel and knew that other teams weren't on him. There was one other team that was interested. And when they went in a different direction in an earlier round, he knew he could wait. Um, you know, uh, and he kept telling, they were ready to take him a little bit earlier. This was a weird instance where their scouting director knew Ian Kinsler because he had seen him in junior college. Um, that doesn't happen very often. So there was some familiarity. So that, that was a little bit of a flipped script and that the scouting director was like, should we, should we take him now? And, you know, Mike Grouse was kind of saying, no, we can wait, you know, we can wait a little longer, probably cost the Kinsler a little bonus money, but, uh, but uh, he knew exactly how long they could wait uh, before we're having to worry about someone else taking him. Yeah. The recap of that draft day, it reads like, you know, like those submarine movies where they're like the incoming torpedo and they're like, wait, wait, wait. And then at the last moment they turn kind of thing. Like it felt. Yes. You know, wait until you see the whites in their eyes kind of before you fire back kind of deal. Right. And, and Kinsler, I mean, as you write, you know, like kind of a perfect storm of, you know, other, other shortstops and second baseman prospects. Like he was always kind of like second fiddle on his own team that there were other guys people were more interested in at every level and every stop. So he, he was overshadowed. And so, you know, that scout did read the room, right. In terms of him, him being outshone. Yeah. And he, I mean, he only played the one year in Missouri and was hurt, you know, so fall ball, he wasn't full strength. I mean, he played, um, but, uh, you know, Mike Grouse was the one who recognized the, especially the speed, the agility factor that wasn't there because he was kind of playing through a bit of a broken, broken foot. And, uh, you know, no one else had, there was no track record previously because he had just transferred. He went from high school to junior college to Arizona state to Missouri. Right. So he never was in one place long enough or played consistently enough before that spring of his last year at Missouri uh, for people to really get a feel for who he for he was, and Mike Ross certainly took advantage of that. Yeah, and he's bouncing around from like different scouts areas throughout that period, right? Like, so it's it's like no one gets like one good look at him, and you know can start championing him. Well, and and you know sometimes what'll happen is a scout from one area will say, "Hey, this guy just came into your area. Keep an eye on him." This would happen with Mason Miller of the A's, who just made it up to the big leagues. He's been hurt a lot of this year, but he you know. He, digressing from the book but to show that there are more stories like that um you know wasn't throwing very hard was you know was at um waynesburg state in pennsylvania uh was ready to stop playing baseball discovered he had diabetes once they got that under he started gaining we started throwing harder and he found a place at gardner webb and the a's area scout in you know the, the pennsylvania ohio area said to the north carolina scout you need to watch this guy. And they ended up taking him in the second round, I think, because of that communication. So that does happen. But with Ian Kinsler, like he didn't play at Arizona State, right? He got taken out of the starting lineup after the first like week or two, lost his job to Dustin Pedroia famously, and, and sat on the bench the rest of the time. So like no one knew who he was. Um, and, uh, you know, so there wasn't even the ability to say, hey, guy in Missouri, keep an eye on this guy, uh, because no one had turned him in that year, probably at all. Yeah. 
the, the Mason Miller thing reminds me because obviously, like with the health changes, his his body changed as a result, and that's projecting body changes is something that comes up with some of these guys depending on you know the age they were first seen and whether they kind of like grew into themselves, right? Like like I'm thinking of like the Lorenzo Cain one, where you know one scout could see you know the shoulders and the like speed and add those two things up and say this guy's going to be a rangy outfielder, but you know that some people looked at him and thought yeah he's a bit of a, a wisp of a thing and and kind of disregarded him particularly when you know he had a, a friend who was considered a prospect and he was tagging along right if he was by himself he probably wouldn't have been seen because he came to baseball so late um and was so raw like he knew nothing and was yeah real thin and i think with guys like that you think well are they going to add strength you know billy hamilton never did Right. He always had the speed. They never needed him to be a power hitter, but he needed to add just enough to impact the ball more because once you get to the big leagues, that matters. Lorenzo Kane did, um, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, the Brewers scouting staff did a fantastic job in 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 recognizing that it is hard to project what's going to happen. And, you know, this book really only looks at that front end, the, the scouting and the projecting and not at the player development part, which obviously is huge for some of these players. Um, you, you know, the scouts hand them over and then it's up to the player largely and all these guys, the work that they put in to exceed expectations cannot be understated and player development systems to help help them maximize what they what they do have. Right. You know, Jacob deGrom was throwing topping out at 90, 91 when he was at Stetson um, and it was a shortstop. They no one projected that he was going to throw as hard as he did, but that was really a testament to him rehabbing after his Tommy John surgery, which happened the summer after he signed, mind you, um, to turn himself into an entirely different beast. Shane Bieber, the other pitcher I have in the book, also touch and feel command guy who just started throwing harder and harder. And the, you know, the guardians have proven to be really, really good at teasing more velocity out of, out of their pitching prospects. And just identifying pitching prospects in general. Yeah. 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 The other thing about the Kane one that I, I I did want to touch upon is the, the idea of the draft and follow. He was he was one of the guys. There were several that you know this was a practice. Uh, you know, obviously stopped uh, through the the collective agreement that the draft and follow kind of like everyone hit pause on it for a while. Uh, but th- this practice of you know getting a guy late and then kind of seeing what he was and how he developed in you know an early year before you know having basically a year to sign him if you if you wanted to but this practice maybe you can talk a little bit about that that practice and how how integrated that was to the story i I, it's a tool that i think most scouts wish they could still have and it's back sort of in a modified there were a couple you could pinpoint like one or two guys but if you signed him you needed to make sure that you still had bonus pool money from the previous year it's very complicated there were only a couple guys that were sort of noted as draft and follow guys. And I don't, I don't think any of them signed, but the basic idea is for guys like Lorenzo Kane, who were, you know, a little more raw, a little more of a project that you didn't really see him against great competition for too long. You want to see, especially in that year between age, say 18 and 19, where your body can change tremendously um, physically. Uh, you want to see how they do against that next rung up of, of competition. And he struggled at first, but then really started to figure it out. And that's why the Brewers decided to sign him. Uh, I think it, it ha- it's happened over the years more with pitchers, um, you know, guys who are like throwers. Uh, you know, Mark Burley was a draft and follow. Um, 
Andy Pettit was a draft and follow, you know, so you can go and let them see how they do against older competition for an entire spring. Cause that back then the signing deadline, you didn't have to sign a guy, you know, who hadn't gone to a four-year college until like a couple of weeks before the next draft. So you could take that entire spring season to continue to, uh, you know, to evaluate him. Yeah, it's a fascinating tool. It's a fascinating book. Uh, I would. Put, I don't know if you've ever read Dollar Sign on the Muscle, which I thought was the other really great book about scouting, but that one's from like the 70s. But uh, if you're interested in baseball at all and interested in the history of, you know, how these players got to the bigs, Smart, Wrong, and Lucky, The Origin Stories of Baseball's Unexpected Stars is a great place to go. Jonathan Mayo, thanks for joining me on the show and, and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great talking to you.
Back here on Thank God, it's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio. You just heard Maya and the Angels of Libra, a 10-piece from Hamburg, Germany, with this song, Turn the Page, off of their self-titled record out on Record Kicks. Turn the Page, of course, Turning Pages, the show that I host with author interviews. As I mentioned at the start of the show, uh, had a couple that just uh, haven't been able to fit in on Wednesdays. A lot of interviews, a lot of authors putting out books recently and coming to town. Uh, One of those is Sheldon Burney, and he will be releasing his album, Where the Pavement Turns to Sand, on November 4th at McNally Robinson. You can tune in on November 1st on 101.5 UMFM to hear my conversation with Sheldon about that. Going to hand things over to After 8 Radio in just a minute here, but we got a couple new tracks to close with. Serpent with Feet, new single called Damn Gloves, featuring Ty Dolla Sign and Yanga Yaya. Uh, we're going to play that one, and then we're going to close things off with a U of M PhD student who performs under the name Sushi Worms. Hoping to get them on the show next week to talk about this new single. It's called Kimbop. Uh-huh. <laughs> 